Most people read the book because they want to know how to build wealth. I wrote the book because I want to talk with them about legacy. Welcome to the Threefold Real Estate Investing Podcast. This is the podcast where you'll not only learn how you can achieve massive success in multifamily real estate investing, but also how you can simultaneously pursue great relationships with your family and a better walk with God. You can achieve financial freedom through real estate investing without sacrificing the relationships that mean the most to you. Now, here's your host, Lee Yoder. All right, three full listeners. I uh, got a great guest today. Terry Moore is joining us today. Um, Terry has has done a bunch of things in real estate. I'll, I'll tell you a few of them. I'll let you. We'll let uh, Terry uh, tell us tell us the other important ones that I missed. Um, first of all, Terry uh, is blessed to be married uh, above his station. I can relate to that uh, to his wife Sandy since 1977. He survived being a real estate developer and syndicator. Uh, I'm guessing before that he owned a, a mom and pop hardware store uh, in Norman, Oklahoma, that he bought from his mom and pop. Um, so stayed in the family business there, but then got into the, the real estate side. Um, he went to SMU, uh, then he went to Oklahoma. Um, he, he was, uh, he's a former commercial loan officer, the bank of America, uh, did a bunch of stuff. He, he's, he's, um, did a lot of, uh, apartment syndications, helped other people do apartment syndications, invested in them, um, as, as a limited partner. Uh, he's done a bunch of, uh, triple net leases. Uh, most of this has been in San Diego. And then I want to, uh, we want to get to this in the end. I really want to talk about, uh, Terry's book. Um, called Building Legacy Wealth, How to Build Wealth and Lead a Life Worth Living. Um, so a bunch of things to get into. Uh, first of all, Terry, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Lee. It's an honor to be with you. Yeah, uh, I'm really excited to get into all this, Terry. You've, you've done a bunch, so we'll try to just uh, pick, a, pick a couple of those things and, and dig in. But why don't we start, Terry, take us all the way back to what you were doing, uh, whether it was a hardware store or what, whatever it was, what were you doing before you got into real estate? And then what, what got you into it? What attracted you to it? So I'm a person of faith. And when I was about 50 years old, I got some clues about how God wired me. And I figured out since college, I had been helping adults make wise choices about money. Mm. Once upon a time, when I worked for the world's biggest bank, we were trying to match an income stream with the decider. And when I had the hardware store, we helped people make choices about what would now be called uh, appropriate technology. And to some extent in Norman, Oklahoma, that was buying wood burning stoves. So they would heat their house with scrap timber that they had in their backyard instead of coal fired energy. And uh, then when I was a developer, it was rehabbing the abandoned gas station and turning it into a single net, triple net. And then as an apartment uh, broker, I helped people buy used apartment buildings with the right things wrong with them, clean them up, paint them up, fix them up, the Bill right. Nickerson notion. And income property sells as a multiple of income. So people buy income property for income. And if you raise the rents 10%, you raise the value 10%. And it wasn't hard to do that in a market that has now 100,000 rental unit shortage, a screaming demand. And because of government policies, a government caused housing shortage. So for 
about 50 years, I've been helping people make smart choices about money. And I started in real estate. I moved back to San Diego. A former boss had paid me to teach him about real estate. He said, I don't know anything about real estate. He said, yeah, but I can trust you and you're a quick study. So he paid me X dollars a week to advise him on what to do with his company and the real estate options that he had. It took me six months to diagnose the problem. I said, you know, if you want to know how to maximize your wealth with real estate, I know the right answer, but you've got to articulate the question. If you want the highest percentage return, we do one thing. If you want the most dollars, we do something else. If you want the lowest risk for your company, you take something else. It took him three months to decide which was the right answer. And it took us two months to implement that. And what did he go with? What was his answer? Um, he had National Pen Corporation and um, they wanted the lowest rent. And so they moved hundreds of jobs out of San Diego. They moved jobs to Ireland, Puerto Rico, and Tennessee. Wow. And um, they bought 100 acres and they bought a facility bigger than what they owned in San Diego for what they would have paid for one year's rent in San Diego. And when they moved jobs to Tennessee and to Ireland and to Puerto Rico, um, they cut their operating costs substantially. They got some tax credits um, and got away from the political and the economic choices of San Diego. The local government didn't care that they had lost hundreds of um, factory jobs with um, a clean company. Yeah. But be that as it may. But happening it, all it, over it, California. That's that's not an uncommon story in California right now, is it? Right. See, California is exporting households that make from 30,000 to 110,000. We, our, our state legislature and our governor in their infinite wisdom have decided that it's a good thing for us to subsidize people who came to our country illegally. Uh, and it's okay for us to export families that pay taxes. And that's... That's the way it is in California. It can only, yeah, it can only last so long. Uh, How long ago was that, so, this Terry? That you were working on this. So I worked for the develop. I worked for the manufacturer for about a year, and at the end of the year, two different people invited me to continue. One was running a Bible study that I had been going to, and he was a shopping center developer. And he said, "For five thousand dollars, I'll sell you half my company in this desk." And that's the option I took. And the other guy invited me back on staff. And I said, I'm not very good at corporate politics. I, I think I'll do this real estate. I think I can make a living at it. And that was more than 30 years ago. And God was merciful. And we have, in fact, made a living at it. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and so, Terry, you, you, you've done a bunch of things. Um, when when you, you, you talked about doing some of the um, some of the apartment syndications, kind of turning apartment buildings around, where was that at? Was that in San Diego or was that out in... Uh back in Oklahoma. So the bulk of our real estate activity in terms of money and time have been in San Diego County. Okay, gotcha. So um, I've syndicated several deals and I've been a limited partner in several deals, but most of the activity, we've closed about 500 apartment escrows and most of those, figuratively speaking, have been your history teacher or your listeners, 
uh, who do relatively small scale investing. So in San Diego, an, an eight unit building can be a $2 million property. Sure. In many states, a $2 million property could be, well, much bigger. Yeah. But 40 we've, units. We've, yeah. So we've, we've done things in North Carolina, Florida, Texas, Oklahoma, but the bulk of the brokerage activity has been in San Diego County. Be- because of government choices, which have created a housing shortage, I have janitors who become millionaires uh, in San Diego, not because the janitors were that much smarter than janitors in Dayton or even smarter than doctors in Cincinnati, but because the government created a huge demand and not enough supply. So in 40 states, the local jurisdictions build enough apartments for the people who didn't graduate from college. That's not true in California. For example, Houston has one fourth the population of the state of California. Houston has built more apartments and condos in the last decade than the entire state of California. Wow, are you kidding me? Apartments are cheap in Houston and in California, they're very expensive. So you're saying, so um, investors in San Diego have, have made money because they were able to get in at a decent price. And if you hold a while, demand just keeps going up because there's, there's plenty of people, there's, there's you know, been some population growth, but they're not building anything. Um, and then, you know, immigration too. So you're having, you know, just as much or more demand for the, for the same rental units and they're not building anything. They're not keeping up with it. Like you said, with the people graduating from college, so the people that are buying the apartment buildings, the value of their apartment building keeps going up. That's close. Let me try to articulate it. I, sure. I communicated sloppily. Roughly speaking, when I started in San Diego, we were building about as many apartments as we needed. Because of zoning changes and impact fees, we gradually tightened the screws. It used to be, so, so there's a place, some people have been to San Diego and they may have been to Balboa Park, which uh, was the equivalent of a World's Fair location about a hundred years ago. And it's a wonderful spot, not as nice as Hyde Park in London, but it's, it's a jewel in the crown of San Diego. Well, one of the zip codes that's right next to that is called North Park. What a creative thing to call something next to a national park. And so North Park originally had a bunch of thousand square foot houses. And in the 1970s, those houses were 30, 40, 60 years old. And a developer came along and he would buy grandma's house. And he would tear it down and put up 10 units with 10 parking spaces and GI Joe who had been serving in the Marines or in the Navy said, you know what? The weather's nicer here than Biloxi, forgive me, or Cincinnati or (laughs) Bronx. And so he decided to stay and he and his honey would live in a back unit above the garage and they had the rents the rest of them out. Well, after a while, the city downzoned and you couldn't build 10 units, you could build nine. A few years later, they downzoned and you couldn't build nine, you could build eight and then you could build seven and then they could build five. And it used to be that the things could be built for $15,000 a piece. Today, if you want to build there, the fees, the government permission slips can cost $70,000 per unit. In Tulsa, you can buy nice apartments, occupied newer apartments for $80,000. In some of our suburbs, it costs $80,000 for the permission slips for water, sewer, schools, police, fire, 
the various and sundry impact fees. So guess what? It didn't make sense to build apartments. So in the last 30 years, we built half as many as we need. We still build them. So if your cousin graduated from Stanford and their first salary is $100,000, come on down. We build apartments for you. If your other cousin didn't graduate from high school and doesn't make $40,000, we're not building enough for that cousin. Yeah. In many places, in Dayton, they build things for the janitor, for the people who wipe, who, who mop the floors and do the dishes, may not build fancy houses, but we build something for them. But in sure. California, we don't. Affordable living. So San Diego in particular, uh, because we have a very diversified economy, we have recessions that are shorter than and milder than the state or the nation, but we don't build enough. So people in this North Park zip code, which is a, nothing special, pretty, nice neighborhood, not fabulous, 60% rentals, um, a bunch of older homes. And you know, we've got 10% uh, of the housing is houses above a million dollars that are 80 years old or something like that. But mostly it's, it's a rental area. Yeah. People who bought there 10 years ago, their equity quadrupled in the last decade. Quadrupled. Dayton is a nice place. Cincinnati is good. But the equity in the central state hasn't quadrupled. Your cash flow is dramatically better. But essentially, in San Diego, people settled for pitiful cash flow because with leverage, you might get a 20% increase in your equity. If it goes up about 7% a year and you've got a one-third debt, two-thirds, uh, a one-third equity, two-thirds debt, you get a 20% rate of return on equity alone. Your cash and cash might be 3%, your equity pay down might be 2% of capital. So you can have a 25% rate of return. That's development returns, that's mafia returns. And it's yeah. completely legal and you know, if, if you clean it up, paint up, fix up, you raise the rent, you do even better. So this is not complicated. Most places don't have policies that hurt the renters. It's ironic. It's not fair, but it's true. A lot of Democratic governors and a lot of Democratic mayors have housing policies which make the Republican landlords rich and cost the Democratic tenants higher rent, and Republican mayors and Republican governors tend to have housing policies which build more, create more competition, and the Democratic tenants do better, and the Republican owners don't do so well. It's bizarre, it's strange, it's maybe unfortunate, it's true, we can't change it. Yeah, so that's what you're talking about, Terry, then going back to you say, you know, you've helped, you know, maybe a janitor become really wealthy and it's because he's bought into these apartment buildings and the, the value is quadrupled. Um, so that's okay. okay. Yeah. Thanks for the explanation. That, that's really, um, I, I mean, it's, it's um, so applicable to today because you are seeing more and more of these uh, policies by cities and you want to be very aware of it. I mean um, you know, don't want to get into too much red versus blue, but I mean, there's very, some very big differences state to state uh, certainly. And then even city to city on, um, yeah, what you would call a landlord-friendly state and a tenant-friendly state, um, and and COVID really showed showed that. I mean, we have you know here in Ohio where it is still possible to evict somebody. Um, it, it's it's difficult for the 
for a resident that just doesn't want to pay to stay, even though, you know, they're claiming COVID, you, you do have to prove that you actually can't pay and it's because of COVID and you actually have to try to pay. And then when your lease is up, you, you're still going to be, you know, we can just not renew your lease. We don't have to evict you. We can not renew your lease. And I know other states where that's very different, uh, very different scenario. It doesn't matter if their lease is, has, has gone up. It doesn't matter if they really show that, that COVID has cost them. I mean, we, you know, I've heard stories where people have a job, uh, but they still don't pay rent and they, they still can't get evicted. So it's something to, to really, uh, I'm glad you went into that because when you're going to invest uh, in an area, you want to know things like that. You want to know what policies are going to help or hinder you. Um, and, and to your point, Terry, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. And I think it's unfortunate that some of these policies that, policies that a lot of people would think benefit the tenant actually do the opposite and really benefit the, the, the landlord because there's not a lot of the other landlords. So he doesn't have competition so he can keep raising the rent. And uh, then what you have, like you say, is you, you have a housing crisis and specifically for lower income people where they can't afford uh, the housing in the area because the, there's, there's no competition. So the pricing just keeps going up. Um, one other thing I'd love for you to get into, Terry, um, is you talked about buying an apartment building with the right things wrong, I think is how, how you put it. And I think I know what you're getting at, but could you get into that a little bit where what you believe from what you've seen so many, uh, you've seen so many transactions, so many, um, you know, in- investors do do well and, and make, um, uh, you know, create wealth by buying an apartment building with the right things wrong. What, what did you mean by that, Terry? What, what should people be looking for when they're buying an apartment building and they want that value add? What are the things that are easy to do to add value? So I'm not your grandfather, but I try to pay attention to people smarter than me. And years ago, there was a fellow who wrote a book, Bill Nickerson. And the first title was how I turned $1,000 into a million and later it became how I turned $3,000 into a million. And Nickerson's notion was you buy the dog on the block with quote, the right things wrong with it. And what he meant by that is if it's got ugly paint, lousy property management, poor landscaping and uh, a deadbeat tenant, all those are fixable problems. If it has a cracked slab, if it's under parked, if it has a dysfunctional layout, if it's next to active railroad tracks. Those are things that you cannot fix. But if you clean up, paint up, fix up, if you take a 30 or 90 year old kitchen and you make it nicer for the lady of the house, by the way, the lady decides where they're gonna live, the lady of the house wants it. If you have a washer and dryer inside, she didn't have to get dressed up or even put on her house robe to do the laundry. So <clears throat> if you do things which make it more appealing, people will rent there and they will pay more. But if you've got a leaky roof and you fix the roof, you don't get more rent because you've solved a habitability problem. Right. I don't pretend to know about Dayton or Cincinnati, but because of the screaming lack of supply that we've got in San Diego. If you make the property nicer, you're going to get people who probably have more income, probably have higher education, probably have higher credit scores. So what's absolutely true for San Diego is not true for every other place. And for people who are investing, my I've, I've known a hundred people who've moved out of, moved their equity out of San Diego and come to regret it. And essentially 
the problem that they made is they didn't understand the market and they didn't understand the dynamic. Sandy and I, my wife and I moved some money out of San Diego. We went to Jacksonville, Florida, and we went to Raleigh, North Carolina, both superb cities, but there wasn't the supply and demand situation. And so the perfect strategy for San Diego was a mediocre strategy in places where they built enough. Mm-hmm. But if somebody knows the fundamentals of the market and they're comfortable with it, so in 40 states, they build enough. And if you buy used building, you clean up, you clean up, you fix it up, you'll probably be able to raise your rents more than the value of inflation. And that's a good thing. People buy income property for income and income property sells as a multiple of the rents. So there's value creation there. It's not as dramatic in most places it is in San Diego. Sure. Detroit is a high risk place. The problem is that they don't have enough working families who can afford to rent. So the government is bulldozing. But if you could buy it cheap enough, it might make sense to buy in Detroit. I'm not an expert, but I understand that Detroit is a high risk play. San Diego is a low risk play. And most places are somewhere in between. Yeah. But essentially, the right things wrong with it are things where you fix a problem and you can raise the rent or you fix a problem and you can decrease the vacancy. In San Diego County, we've got 100 zip codes and the scariest zip code that we've got, we don't have any slums. We have poor areas. We don't have any slums. The scariest area in San Diego has 96% occupancy. In San Diego, (laughs) our tenants, 95% of our tenants are paying rent. Nationally, apparently it's somewhere in the mid 80s. But people in San Diego understand that temporarily the government is making it hard to evict them, but they also understand if they want to live here in two or three or four years, they shouldn't have a record of not paying the rent because when COVID is over, landlords will pay attention to that. Sure. You'll still have an eviction on your record. Yeah, we we have a, a low risk investment choice with a very high equity return, which is different from other places. But the yeah, value yeah. Added, if you can fix a problem for $10,000 and you create $15,000 worth of value, that's a good deal. It makes yeah. sense to do it. If it costs you $15,000 to create $10,000 worth of value, that's a bum deal. That's not profitable. Yeah. Yeah. And what you talked about there, the, the value is based on the, uh, a multiple of the rent. So a lot of times you throw 10,000 in and raising rent even by, you know, 25, 50 bucks, you know, over the course of a year and a cap rate, you know, out in San Diego, four or five cap. I mean, you, you've, you've blown away your investment and it's, and it's usually a very good return just by getting uh, smaller uh, bumps in rent, um, especially in an area like that where the values are going up. But th- thanks for explaining that, Terry. Um, you, you mentioned the book there. Uh, speaking of, of, of um, a book with some good stuff in it, let, let's, let's talk about yours a little bit, um, Terry. Uh, tell us just a little bit about uh, your book, Building Legacy Wealth. How to build wealth and lead a life worth living. Um, you know that that's something we're we're very interested here at Threefold. This it's uh, something we talk about a lot on the podcast. Uh, we love to go beyond just the nuts and bolts of real estate and beyond creating wealth and and, and doing well financially. Uh, we like to talk about what that means for your family, what that means for your faith. Uh, I know you're a man of faith. I know family is important to you. So um, yeah, t- tell us a little bit about your book. So when I told my wife I was going to write a book, she said, what? You're going to write a get rich quick book? I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm going to write a get rich slowly book. Uh, yeah. It's building legacy. Well, most people read the book because they want to know how 
to build wealth. I wrote the book because I want to talk with them about legacy. So Lee, sometime in the next hundred years, you and I are going to be gone. And when we're gone, we're going to leave an inheritance. The inheritance is the stuff. Those are the dimes. Those are the dollars. Those are the deeds. The people you leave it to, they might squander it. They might gamble it away. They might divorce it. It might burn down, but the stuff can disappear. Yep. More important is the legacy. Lee, your legacy is what people say and think and do because of your influence. So sure. lots of people think that wealth is a good thing. As it turns out, money is a great slave. It's a terrible master. Mm -hmm. Hopefully the people who listen to your podcast understand that there are more important life goals than material wealth. Those of us who believe the outrageous claims of Jesus, he talked about setting where your, where your treasure is, your heart will be. Right. And wood, hay, and stubble may provide for missions, family, but it's the legacy. So I'm older than you are, and I'm thinking about what happens in the next season of my life. Lots of people retire. Few do it very well. Some people retire, they're bored to tears, and they go back to work. Some people don't count their nickels and dimes very well, and they have to go back to work. Some people buy the illusion, the delusion, that the best thing after you're through working is to get in the RV and go to the search of the perfect soft yogurt. That's a pretty shallow life. And other people figure out, you know what? God wired me differently. And strength finders, there's 34 strengths. Mm -hmm. Your five strengths are different from mine. And in the United States, Lee, there's somebody else who has the same five strengths that you do in the same order. In fact, there's 10 of you. The odds are 33 million to one that somebody will have the same five strengths that you do. So God wired you. He formed you in your womb. And he had a particular plan for you. And with passing time, you're going to figure out what your gifts are, what your callings are. There's going to be some things that are passions for you, some things that you're wildly excited about. Maybe you're excited about helping poor folks or benefiting at-risk kids or whatever. But if you can use the skills that you developed over your lifetime, and if you can do it for passion, something you really care about, some cause that's greater than you, you're applying your gifts, you're figuring out the right role. You know, do you want to be chairman of the board? Do you want to write the checks? Do you want face-to-face -face contact? Do you want to be doing the dishes where nobody sees you? So what's your role and what's your organization? If you can figure out how to plug into that, your post working years can be more impactful than your working years. So sure, yeah. it, in my stage of life, I'm in the legacy stage and I would like to help people have a life of meaning, which for me might be second Timothy two, two. Paul said to Timothy, you've seen me invest in you. I want you to invest in other people who invest in others following. Yeah. So there was four generations there. And that was Paul's charge to Timothy. Mm -hmm. Well, wood, hay, and stubble is kind of how you and I feed our family, but hopefully we're involved in something more important than just getting bags of $100 bills from one rich person to another rich person. 
hopefully we're doing something which will benefit folks bigger than us. Activity helps my circle. Significance helps other people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well said, Terry. And I, I, yeah, I think it just makes life so much more meaningful um, and, and, and more lasting. I, I was just talking to somebody um, and, and they're mentioning kind of the same thing where, you know, and they've talked to other people that, you know, when you, when you um, build onto yourself, you know, it, it's going to run out. And, and even if you do reach those goals, you're going to look around and go, okay, but what's all this for? You know, here I have this, this palace or whatever that I built this wealth, but what, what am I going to do with it? Uh, but when you start to involve others, when you're doing it for others, um, you have people around you, you have relationships and that's so much more lasting, so much more fulfilling. Um, so Terry, tell me this, like in light of that, with, with your career in real estate, um, what's that look like for you? How have you, um, how were you able to use real estate or maybe it's the others use real estate and, and still um, prioritize your, your family, the relationships with your family, pouring into them and leaving a legacy with them um, and, and, and maybe pursuing your faith as well? Well, the good news is I've had a band of brothers around me and they have spoken the truth, sometimes unbidden. So my two favorite books in the Bible are Proverbs and James. You need to put the cookies on the bottom shelf for me to get it. As I understand the book of Proverbs, it makes a big distinction between the fool who scorns reproof, ignores wisdom, doesn't want to hear correction, as opposed to the wise man who seeks counsel, who will change. I don't always like the truth, but the truth is my friend. And so in the first 20 years of my marriage, I was such a fool. I thought I'd done my wife a favor. I had a friend <laughs> who spoke the truth to me and he said, how's your marriage? Yeah, okay. How does your wife think my marriage is not so hot? And so this mild mannered gentleman scholar, turned into the Tasmanian devil. And he looked about nine feet tall and about 400 pounds. And he pointed his finger at me and he said, you got it. And I scrunched down like a mouse and nodded and smiled. And essentially we ended up going to seven marriage retreats, marriage renewal, marriage resurrection. We did navigators. We did a whole bunch awesome. of things trying yeah. to get it right. And now I spent the last 23 years trying to become the man that God wants me to be trying to become the husband that she deserves. Yeah. And people who fear God are probably going to be easier to get along with because they might outsmart you or me, but nobody's going to outsmart God. Mm -hmm. So if somebody has an eternity perspective, they're more likely to treat people as if they really were God's creation. Yep. 85% of the people that I serve don't agree with me about religion or politics. And it kind of doesn't matter to me. I need to understand them. It's not important that I agree with them. I need to understand what their goals are. And some people, I will not serve them. If they're slumlords, no thanks. I won't work for you. I don't care how much you pay. Have a nice life. See you later. Goodbye. But if I understand what they want, I can probably help them get there. So in terms of figuring out what's most important, that's still difficult for me. I have, yeah. a, I have a coach who works at a national level. He came out and spent three days here. He said, Terry, we're going to talk about triage. You know what that is? Well, let's see, that's trying to figure out who's going to live, who's going to die, and who needs treatment. He said, that's it. So for five years, he's been asking the questions that boils into which half of this should throw away. Essentialism, one page, picking the very few things that really matter, 
and passing on the confetti. If I get an award for the best confetti sorter, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I, I took one of my wisest partners to lunch a couple of years ago and I said, Skip, I know you're smart, but you can't be that much smarter than me. How do you do it? How do you set better priorities? And he said the William Carey quote, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at what doesn't matter. Yeah, that's a good one. A couple of years ago, I was on a triathlon and fell off a perfectly good bike. I spent two days and a night in the hospital and an important verse became, became Psalm 90, 12. Teach me a number of my days and I'm going to show you a heart of wisdom. So I'm a flawed but stubborn follower of Jesus. Most days I spend time repenting and then reading devotionals, trying to get presentable to the rest of the world so that I hope I can do what God wants me to do and I can resist the temptation to be distracted by other things. I'm still battling that and I may battle it forever. The good news is it be a brain kind of like a popcorn popper and generate lots of ideas. Some of them are worth doing. Most of them are not. But I try, somebody, I was reading something recently and said, how do you know what God wants you to do? I listen. So if you chase God, he will probably find you. Yeah. Well, hey, Terry, one thing I was going to hit really hit on, because I really like, uh, luckily my wife is, is very wise in this area and, and pushed us in the, this direction. I think I, I like that. Um, well, I, I like what you said about, you know, when, when you're when you're a Christ follower, you're, you're probably going to be easier to be around because um, I think what, what God does it. Well, one, he put people in your life to do it. But if you, if you listen to God, he's going to tell you this, too. And he's always going to. Um, Jesus teaches us a life of service that we're serving others. And when you're a husband, you're serving your wife. And when you go to God and, you know, maybe, maybe you're complaining about your wife or something, what God's going to tell you to do is turn around and, and serve your wife and, and step up and be the leader. And so you had a friend, uh, you know, a, a good brother in Christ telling you to do that. And then I like what you, you know, you guys did, you, you went to these marriage conferences and, and you were intentional about making your marriage better. And that's what it takes. It takes that work. Um, and it takes being intentional, just like, you know, we've talked so much about real estate and so much about business and, and, and the things that you can do and the, the techniques and, and put this effort in. And if you do this, it, it's the same way with relationships, um, especially a marriage, you know, it, it takes, I mean, a lot of people would go to a conference to learn about, you know, uh, apartment syndication, you know, there, there's those all over and people pay big money for it. Uh, and, and not enough people, I don't think, you know, go to uh, conferences for their marriage. Uh, and, and it's so much more important. So man, kudos to you. Uh, what you, what'd you say? 23 years ago, whatever it was that you invested in that and got uh, um, intentional about it and, and, you know, probably saved your marriage and, and allowed you to, to be a much better husband and have a much better marriage. So um, that's a good word there, um, Terry. I, I appreciate that. Um, I, hope, I hope people listen to that. Um, one, one thing, just, just real quick, Terry, um, I, I like to ask, uh, you, you've been around investing so long, uh, so you probably got a bunch of things, but what, what would you say is the one key ingredient that someone needs to be a good investor? It makes sense if you know what you want and what you're willing to give up. And, so I recently went to Dallas and there were nine hotshots and me around the table. And my resume probably wasn't the least impressive, but it was nowhere, it may not have even been the top half. And one of the questions that we were asked by the wise Christian counselors is, what has your success cost you? And we heard stories of 
the second wife, the love of the life. First pregnancy was hard. Second pregnancy was much different. She said to her husband, you really need to take our son and get out of the house for the day. He came back. She had blown her brains out. She was five months pregnant and his second son died. We heard about somebody who had fabulous business success and was separated from his wife for three years. So we saw people who leaned their ladder and these were people who were believers who wow. leaned their ladder against the wrong wall and they climbed a ladder of success, but it had cost them, they got stuff that wouldn't last and it cost yeah. them what would last. Yep. So for some people, if you're a bigot, frankly, you shouldn't be a landlord. If you care about people, you could probably be a landlord. If you're a people pleaser, you should probably have a management company. So <laughs> understand who you are and what your gifts are. You know, for some people, they want to drive the bus. Maybe they should be your competitor and be a syndicator. Other people yeah. have got more than enough going on. Maybe they should be a limited partner. Yep. So part of it is what you want to do and what you're willing yeah. to pay to get it. Yeah, it's good advice. I would, I would love to have a chest that's two inches bigger than yours and a waist that's four inches smaller than mine. And I've got an idea of what it would take to do that. And I only push so hard at the gym and I really like eating. And so <laughs> yeah. I figured out, I know what I would like and I know what it costs. And so I've, I've tried to come to something where I'm congruent about yeah. that. Yep. Almost yeah. everything worth doing in life is hard and you've got to pick your hard. Yeah. Can't do it all. No, right. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff there, Terry. Wait, you've given a couple, but, um, and I'll definitely put yours in the show notes. Uh, what would you say is your best real estate related book recommendation? That's a great question. The one you, uh, you mentioned, was it Dickerson that, that had to turn in $1,000 into a million? Yeah, so Bill Nickerson wrote a Nickerson. book like 80 years ago or something like that. He, yeah. he wrote a classic, which was universally true. And things that was profound and revolutionary then are, well, kind of taken for granted now. Lots of people know it. Annie Duke wrote a book, Thinking in Bets. And she is against what she calls resulting well, I drove the, through the intersection and ran a red light and made it, and therefore it was a good choice. No, it was a stupid choice. You had a good outcome. The result is separate from whether it was a good choice. But her notion of getting people around you who will look at the facts and say, given the choices, given the options, was that the smart play? There's lots of things where you have a good outcome, but it was, it was a stupid choice that had a good result. And yeah. she invited people to think about the odds. Actually, yeah. I gave the wrong answer. The right answer is the Bible. Even if you don't think it's inspired, if you just say, I'm going to read the Proverbs because there's a page a day and I can read 31 pages in a month. The next month I can read it again. Even if you don't think it's inspired, it's got little nuggets that are practical. Stay away from angry people. Don't yeah. start fights reconcile. It has 600 two-sentence things that are great practical advice whether you think the book is inspired or not. Yeah, definitely stood the test of time. Many of your buyers, many of your readers, or many of your listeners, it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thanks for all those recommendations, Terry. Those are good stuff. A couple of those I've read, a couple I haven't. Um, Hey, before I let you go, uh, Terry, uh, how might my listeners and I be praying for you in the coming weeks? 
God bless you. And I've done this about 20 times. You're the first guy who's asked that. So I would like to be listening. God's always whispering. And I would like to be listening. Yep. So when I asked my wife, I I was just barely paying attention. And he introduced me to her. And on the first night, I knew that she was the woman I was going to marry. Somehow she didn't get that. But I figure <laughs> if I listen to God, he's probably going to continue to talk. So I need to focus on the few things that he wants me to do and respectfully decline all the invitations to confetti. Thank you for asking. Yeah, yeah. No, good stuff there. It's, it's a great prayer. Prayer we all need. Um, we should all be praying that. Uh, wait, but uh, yeah, the, the very last thing, Terry, how, how can people... Uh, reach out to you, check you out. Um, you know, I, I'm like I said, I'll, I'll put the I'll put your book in the show notes. I'm sure that's probably Amazon, probably the best place for that. But but how can people can how can people look up look you up or reach out to you? So the email is email, phone, and I'll give you a website. Okay. So the phone is 619-889-1031. 619-889-1031. The email is T is in Tom, Emerson, Mike, O O R E, ten thirty one at Gmail. Timor ten thirty one Gmail, and then yep. the website is San Diego Apartment Broker. So apartment singular broker singular dot com. Okay. Okay. Great. All right, I'll put that on the show notes. Thank I'm you. Can reach out to you, Terry. Thanks so much for your time, man. Um, you, you've done a lot. I know we didn't even scratch the surface of uh, the, the experiences that you've had and, and uh, the successes that you've had um, and, and the wisdom that you've gained from all that. But um, you certainly shared a lot with us today. Um, you know, you some really good stuff. And, and so I appreciate that, Terry. Uh, thanks for coming on the show and uh, sharing that with us today. Thank you for joining us for another great episode. I hope you'll take action on what you've learned today. If you enjoyed today's show, please consider leaving Lee a five-star rating and review. And check him out on threefoldrei.com. Until next time, 1 Timothy 6.17.